0: Welcome back to the Talk Sex Podcast. This is the Sex Work in Film episode. I'm your host, Elle Stanger. Our guest is Asia Corinne, and we're going to be talking to her for the next hour at Asia Corinne and at Pleaser Series on Instagram. And that will be spelled in the episode notes. What is pleasers about? Tell us a little bit about your film.
1: So pleasers is about stripping and identity. And I think one of the most important things about Pleasers is we took an anthropological ethnographic approach. So I actually am an anthropologist. Um, I have my bachelor's degree in anthropology. So did my partner that I was working on the film with. So we took that approach to asking these women about how they see themselves themselves. In the context of their own lives, but also in a sense, in the context of how society sees them and what that means to them. Oh, wow. Ongoing and throughout their lives, and how they apply that to their everyday, and taking the stereotypes that are transmitted throughout the airwaves about sex work, addressing those, and then analyzing whether or not they applied and what that meant. I released it in June 2021.
0: Okay. How can people find it?
1: It is on YouTube right now. So you can literally type in stripper documentary and it should be the first thing that pops up.
0: Oh, good. You got that good SEO right now. Okay. SEOs. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So what is, and what is your background in stripping or sex work?
1: So I used to be a stripper. Yeah. So I, I think it was in 2017. I started dancing.
0: How long did you go?
1: I, I did the, the year burnout situation. So I know that most people uh. don't make it past the first year, but it wasn't necessarily that I burnt out. It was, I loved stripping, to be honest. Um, it gave me a lot of confidence. It made me feel more confident in my body, more confident mentally, more confident, of course, financially. There's upsides and downsides to everything, of course, but I would say that I gained a lot of personal positivity from dancing. And the reason that I quit was because I was lying to my boyfriend about it. So we were dating for two years. Yeah. Oh, my gosh.
0: Mm -hmm. It must have been really, really hard.
1: In a way, it was. But the way I looked at it at the time was, if you're not paying my bills, then you don't have a say in what I do. But I didn't tell him what I had going on. I had this whole elaborate ruse for where I was going, why I was looking all dolled up. I told everybody that I was working at a gay club in Long Beach and I researched a Mm -hmm. club, told them which club it was. So it looked like I wasn't having any lies. It looked like I wasn't hiding anything. Mm -hmm. And so I told them I was a bartender at that club. And I Mm -hmm. knew that one, my man is not going to come to a gay club. Like, why would he? Neither is my dad. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so I covered all my bases and I told them I was a bartender and it's far. Nobody's going to come see me or pop up at my job in Long Beach at a gay club at 10 p.m. That's so, smart. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I got away with it. But when we first started dating, it was very casual for me. And as time passed, I realized how much I liked him and how much we had grown and then it started eating at me and I was like, wow, I'm really kissing this guy goodbye. He's telling me, have a great day at work. I love you. And I can't wait to see you when you get back. And I'm going to twerk, you know, and okay. giving lap dances for $20 in the, in the $20 room. So after a while it started to get to me. So that's kind of why I quit. Can I ask,
0: and you don't have to share any of this. Um, I definitely work with a couple people who have tried to hide it from their partners or they do hide it from their family. And when I say that seems really hard, I mean like the logistics of it. Yeah, which mm-hmm. you just explained. Um, can I ask why Why you, was there like it was too late to explain or backtrack the lie or why you, you never felt that you could explain what was really happening?
1: Yeah, um, it's funny because there was this one particular time where he went he picked me up from school. I I used to go to SMC and he picked me up and we went to the beach and we had lunch and it was a really cute little date. And I was like, today's the day that I'm going to try to fish to see if I can tell him to see if this is a safe space. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, at our, at my job, they have all of these events, like the club I chose, they had like furry night and stripper night. They had all these Mm things. And so I would tell them that I I told him I tried a pole night one time and everybody loved me and they said that I should be a stripper. I got all Mm. these tips, X, Y, and Z. What -hmm. do you think about that? And he lost his shit off a hypothetical. And so after that I was like, there's no way Ah. (laughs) this is not going to work out. And he doesn't, he's a super honest guy. So he doesn't like being lied to. And it's either I just act like this didn't happen and sweep it under the rug or um, and keep stripping, or I just move on and do something else. Like, what is this worse? Wow. So that's where, that's how I quit. Okay. Okay. We're still together. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We've been together almost six years.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a gay bar in Long Beach that was the hypothetical pretend job. Can I ask whereabouts you were working and you don't have to name the club?
1: Oh, yeah. I don't mind at all. So uh, when I first started dancing, I was dancing at Deja Vu North Hollywood. And then my favorite club I ever danced at was California Girls in Anaheim.
0: Mm. Why'd you like it? And
1: I I just, I really liked the culture of the club. I really actually felt like the managers cared. They were pretty gentle. It was a higher end kind of clientele Mm. that I would experience. And it wasn't full nude as well. Okay. Not that I had a problem with full nude. I think that it was a very integral part of me learning how to love my body when I first started dancing. Mm. Um, But I realized that I personally could make more money in just a topless club, where when you get into the actual booths, there's not a lot of touching involved and you can't actually take off your top. So your situation and how you go topless is basically just on the stage and you have to be within a certain amount of feet from the patrons. And I just felt really safe at that club And Mm. I also knew that no one would find me there. And that was a really big important part to me feeling comfortable in sustaining this entire secret life I had around dancing was knowing that by absolutely no accident could anybody pop up here and see me. When I was working in the Valley, I was constantly paranoid. Mm. I knew that my boyfriend didn't go to strip clubs. My dad doesn't go to strip clubs. Nobody, none of the men really in my life would go to a strip club around that area at least. And, but it was still constantly a paranoia. Mm -hmm. If somebody saw me Mm -hmm. and they saw me turn into the club, then what? They know the kind of car I have. They know my license plate. So I got really paranoid and being all the way down in Anaheim gave me a piece of mind I really needed for my financial success at the time.
0: Okay. All of that makes sense to me. I've only ever worked in fully nude clubs in Portland, Oregon. Um, so was there alcohol in that club?
1: the in the california girls
0: yes the topless only and then okay yeah because that tends to be the trade-off it seems like around the country like if it's full nude there's no booze in a lot of cases right okay um okay so i just have one more curiosity question that i feel like listeners might be wondering again you don't have to share but um so is it off the table that you would ever re-enter stripping now that he knows that you had been
1: i think there is a part of me that will always love the club. I'll always love the feelings. I'll always love the vibe. I'll always love money cascading down from above <laughs> onto my body, you I'm know. Neon I'll always love those things. Right. I love I love it. But we have talked about it if that's ever a possibility. Okay. Currently, as it stands, I don't see myself necessarily going back into the club, but I think there's a part of me that always will have the door open for for that if need be and he and I have talked about it and he said if you ever do go back to the club he just doesn't want to hear about it he doesn't want to hear if I had a good day doesn't want to hear if I had a bad day doesn't want to hear about how much money I made and that's understandable if that is his trade-off for the boundary that he has to set for his own comfort zone Mm -hmm. but he does understand um, and facilitates me being an autonomous woman good and he's amazing
0: Good. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you found something that works for you, definitely. So what are the goals of the film? Because you're interviewing, you said, other strippers and particularly focusing on how they see themselves. You said it was an anthropological, ethnographic uh, approach, correct?
1: Right. With Pleasers, the way I see it and the way that it's currently being curated and rolled out is the first pilot which is just called Pleasers, is about stripping an identity. Subsequent episodes are going to be about other things going on in the sex work industry. So the next one that I have coming out is called Black and Kinky, and I'm focusing on my entire thing that I typically focus on is identity and the intersections of how that plays into how somebody sees themselves and how they operate throughout their lives. So the next one I have is black and kinky, and it follows three black dominatrixes making space for themselves and making space for other kinky black folks, especially in New York. Um, so that's kind of the way I see pleasers is it's sex work based. But we're talking about all of these other facets of it because there's so many different aspects to it. And I think that they all are important. It's also important to destigmatize sex work, destigmatize sex workers, because it makes it ultimately a safer environment for everybody when you don't have to fear how people will interpret what you're doing, how people will see you, what that means ongoing and things like that.
0: Is there anything that you learned or heard that surprised you when making pleasers? like from the participants themselves?
1: I think more than anything, I was surprised by how open they were, how vulnerable they were. It's not every day that you get an interview with somebody that you really don't know that well, that will welcome you into their home and completely let down all of their walls to be real with you. And I would say probably another aspect to that surprise is how much more people feel comfortable when they know that you're from a similar background as them. Not necessarily like socioeconomically, mm. but just work wise. You know, we're I'm a sex worker. I get it. And before I dropped pleasers, I wasn't out about it. I wasn't out about dancing. I wasn't out about having been a dancer. But I would DM these girls on the side and be like, Hey, you know, I used to be a dancer, so I get it. Can I interview you for this? And that would immediately let down a wall that they would want to mm-hmm. let me in to understand them further. And it, it it really has been an honor working with the women of the first film and then the women that I've worked with since. Um but I don't know if anything was extremely surprising to me because I created pleasers based on a lot of the questions I was asking myself when I was a dancer. I have always been middle class ish, you know, middle class slash upper middle class, especially when I lived in Atlanta. It's like so much cheaper to live out there. So I came from this upbringing with my family. So when I started dancing, it was to pay off debt, and I had a hard time understanding why I was there. Sometimes I'd be like, yeah, "I have a great relationship with my dad, and I went to school, and I did all these things. Why am I here?" Mm. And I went into the club with the mentality of, "I'm better than all these other mm-hmm. women." I see that sometimes. I'm going to mm-hmm. school. Yeah, you know, I had I had a lot of internalized homophobia. That I hadn't checked, that I didn't even know was present. I just wasn't aware. I wasn't why why would I be if I had never done sex work and I wasn't really involved with people who had done sex work and maybe I was, they just didn't come out to me, you mm-hmm. know. But I went into it thinking, I'm here for a goal. I'm here to pay off my debt. I'm going to school. I'm a straight A student. I'm better than all you other hoes. Mm-hmm. Y'all are here because you have to be. And it wasn't until I realized that these are real people, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was researching whether or not I wanted to be a stripper, I literally was on YouTube watching videos (laughs) of what it was like. (laughs) And I never felt like and there's so many women that do that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I never felt like anything that the women talked about truly related to what I wanted to know exactly. It was all about how much money you make, what kind of shoes you buy, how to smell good, how to possibly sell a dance. But I never really watched a video where it talked about what it feels like, mm. what it means to mm-hmm. you. How are you going to see yourself going forward? And of course, there's the stereotype that women in the strip club, they're all catty. None of them care about you. Uh, crabs in a barrel mentality. Mm. But when I when I got there and after a few months of working there, I realized these These girls are great. Mm -hmm. There are doctors in here. There are really great mothers in here. There are artists in here. And I'm in here. And one of the things that Kumari, one of the women from my film, said that I resonated to the most because she went through this similar feeling. She said she realized that she's not outside looking in anymore. She's inside looking around. And that's exactly how it felt for me, being able to, if nobody knew, that I was a dancer, how would they treat me? Mm You know, I would tell people as a joke, oh, I'm a stripper. And they'd be like, oh, please, you're so goofy and you're just so hilarious (gasps) and no way, you're not sexy, (laughs) you know? Yeah, so I would get a lot of those things and I realized anybody inside of the club does not know me how people outside of the club don't Mm -hmm. know me, so how do I bridge the gap between these two understandings of myself and my current understanding of myself within the context of this new environment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to tell this story and it's more powerful and it means more if other people are feeling this way because I can't possibly be the only mm-hmm. one. And then we, we gathered up all the girls, my partner, Allie, who I worked on it with. She brought in China and Lucy. And then it was a collective af- effort to bring in Shay, who's like, everybody knows Shay. <laughs> So Spin and Shay, she was on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, We went to the strip club and we were like throwing money on her. And then we asked her literally while we were paying for a lap dance, you want to be in our film? And she said, yes. Nice. And then Kamari was sent to me through somebody else's DM.
0: Nice. Um, To go back to something you said about your internalized horror phobia in the beginning, I didn't recognize it at the time, but same for me, definitely, because I was married for The first several years that I was stripping. And so for me, I was like, oh, my uh, Well, not my first husband, but my second husband. I was like, my second husband has a really great job. Like, I actually don't need to be here. I could afford to just be a stay at home mom. But I like this and I like making money for myself. So and a lot of people aren't they don't want to hear that shit, you know, because they're struggling financially because not everybody has a partner that makes enough to cover both of them. Um, and so that definitely drew some ire from people who were dealing with more um, challenges than myself. And then we got a divorce and I was like, oh, I have to support myself entirely now. So it's not just for fun and liberation. And that was a really good reframe uh, because when it comes down to it, like we're all there because we need money because it's a capitalist society. So to try to justify it otherwise is something I I just try to not do. So it's it's refreshing to hear that that was something um that you related to in a different way sounds like
1: yeah and I I really like that you brought up the the necessity versus the want and I think that that has a lot to do with me being able to go into the club and experience it as an empowering liberating event mm-hmm. in my life that was so pivotal to my future that I, I didn't know that at the time obviously but mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I look at is the fact that I wasn't doing it for survival. Mm-hmm. I think that absolutely changes the dynamic of how you experience sex work because some people don't have the liberty to go in there and be like, this feels great because they're worried about a million other things. Mm-hmm. Right. And not to say that survival sex workers don't have empowering moments or, or aren't empowered. I'm sure that they do find empowerment, but I just think that, going in there as a luxury versus going in there as a necessity are two different experiences a lot of the time. And I've spoken with dancers who aren't survival sex workers. And I think that there's sometimes a little bit of a disconnect in how they relate to sex workers who are doing it for survival. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I see it. Um, I see some frustration, uh, here in Portland. Well, so I've only worked in Portland, uh, And I definitely see frustration from people who are like, I have to get my car out of the shop or, you know, this huge amount of rent that I owe or my partner and I have a substance abuse issue or, you know, I have to feed my child. There's a difference between how people show up and like what their mentality is versus the new auditions or the dancers that are like, I'm an art student and I just love dancing and movement. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. Okay, so I want to read some uh, listener feedback. I read you react. I asked my Instagram peoples at stripperwriter. So I said, I'm a stripper and I wish more people knew. Someone says buying me drinks doesn't pay my
1: rent. Yeah, so I agree. (laughs) Absolutely. There's always an issue where People think that, oh, I'm spending money on you. Doesn't that feel good? It's like, you know, it would be feeling really better if that money was in my pocket and not going to this bartender at the end of the night who sometimes I have to tip out of the money that you didn't give me. Yeah,
0: alcohol does nothing for me, like especially now. (laughs) Uh, Okay, someone else says, it's more physically demanding than when I was a construction worker.
1: I don't know anything about construction work, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> that's I, an honest answer. They both, they seem, both really seem really hard. hard. If that's your experience, then I can't tell you otherwise, but I don't know anything about construction work.
0: That's a great answer. Uh, someone else says we pay to work. True. True. Yeah. Someone else says sometimes I leave a seven plus hour shift with zero dollars.
1: Oof, that's rough. Yeah, there's Mm -hmm. those days. There's those days for sure. Especially if the house Mm -hmm. fee is insane.
0: Mm -hmm. Someone else says, I'm not rich. People don't just throw money at me. I work hard for every $20 dance. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's a really good, I think that's great because a lot of people think that you walk into the club and people are throwing money on you just for walking into yeah, no. the club. Hey, beautiful girl, here's a bunch of money, but it's a lot of work, and people take the exact predispositions that they have outside with their preferences directly into the club, so it's not easy for everybody, and sometimes $20 is a lot mm-hmm. of work.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh Someone says, I fucking love it, it's not sad, I picked it and I fucking love it. Nice,
1: congratulations, nice. baby. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Someone else says, it is very, very physically, mentally, and emotionally draining sometimes. Definitely. That's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Someone says, strippers don't all have a high libido. We aren't all promiscuous. And for those who do have high libidos and are, cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Abso- yeah. You know, you go into the club and every guy that you're with thinks that you want to hook up with them. It's like, bro, this is my literal job. Yeah. <sighs> I'm here
0: to entertain you and have conversation and look pretty and maybe there's some touch or not. It depends on the rules and the consent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone says I'm a fucking human too.
1: Yes. Sex workers are people. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's drive that home. Mm -hmm. Someone else says I'm a great mother too. I love that one. Mm -hmm. Someone says we are expected to subsidize the staff's wages in the form of tips. Oh
1: God, yes, Lord, that's my least favorite. That Mandatory my least tip favorite. out. Mandatory tip out. Why? Mm-hmm. And of of what? If I'm getting sixty percent, you guys are taking forty, and now I have to tip out what another ten percent? I'm leaving with fifty percent of everything I've worked a hundred percent hard for. Crazy, mm-hmm.
0: right? And people are like, strippers all make so much money, and it's like we tip out more than you paid to come in here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, someone says there isn't an amount of money that I would accept to sleep with them.
1: Great. That's awesome for them. I know that yeah, there are some people who are into that and that is also awesome for them too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: yep. I've gone both ways on that. I've had clients yeah. where I'm thinking like one guy was like, Oh, I have $15,000. And I was like, show Whoa, me, <laughs> but even which he didn't, but even oh, still, I was yeah. like, there's no way in hell. Like, to myself, I'm thinking like it it wouldn't be worth it. But then like even a few weeks ago, I had a client where uh, he was really easygoing and had Mm -hmm. great hygiene and uh, he was smaller bodied. So less physically threatening, hypothetically, if I was alone with him, you know, these Mm -hmm. are things we calculate or I do. And um, I thought about texting my boyfriend to be like, hey, how would you feel if I did a full service thing sometime this week? Because it occurred to me that it would be lucrative and easy enough to do and then um, my my privilege came up, and it was like, but you don't really need the money that bad to where you have to expend all this effort. And I was like, oh, thanks, choice and circumstances. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> Choices. I love that. Uh, thank you. Um, okay, let's see. Last one
1: here.
0: Doop, doop, doop. Someone says, we are human too, and it's not all as glamorous as it seems.
1: I love that one. I think that's a really that's a really big point and something that i've tried to drive to viewers and people who don't really understand understand sex work that it's not all about glamour it's that's marketing
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm right so. it is marketing right <laughs> right and a lot of us perform affluence in order to try to get more customers that's you know, true right
1: yeah. Okay. In the club, sometimes you have to look super expensive to make money and you're like, I am really on my last dollar. <laughs> but y'all right? wouldn't know that because the confidence is through the roof. Yeah. Right, totally.
0: Okay, so we're gonna take a break. Everybody go to Instagram to look up Asia Corinne and at Pleasers Series two S's and find me at L underscore Stanger is my backup on Instagram or at StripperWriter. And my website is stripperwriter.com. We're always on the lookout for companies and products that share our quest for better sex, and Kimono condoms is one of them. Kimono Micro Thin Plus pairs ultra-thin premium latex with silky, water-based aqua lube for a condom that feels like nothing at all. Tested in America's bedroom since the 1980s, Kimono Micro Thin Plus is specially designed to maximize both pleasure and protection. Try it for yourself. Use code 20microaqua on Amazon for 20% off your kimono purchase through June 27th. Welcome back to the Talk Sex podcast. Throw a nice little rating or review on your listening app because that helps more people find us. Sex education and self-help and entertainment is free in this case. All these things are valuable, and you can get it in this podcast. Ah, So we are doing the sex work in film episode. Our guest, Asia Corinne, was a stripper in 2017 for a year, and she completed a film in June of 2021 called Pleasers, where she interviewed current and former strippers or just current strippers?
1: Everybody at the time was a current stripper. Okay,
0: got it. All right, so let's do some listener questions. Mm. Okay, so these questions are from people who listen to the show and my social media audience, so we can each answer them, but I'm going to ask you to lead with the answer, Asia. So listener question one, what comes to mind when you think of sex workers on film, besides your own film?
1: For me, yeah, (laughs) yeah. um, For me personally, what I think about is most of the time, whoever's behind the camera driving the force of the project is not a sex worker. So Mm -hmm. whenever this is like a personal bias, I guess, but whenever I hear about a new project that comes out and they're like, this is a sex work based project, I'm always a little iffy about it because I'm like, okay, like whose idea was this? Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very important for me that there are things occurring in film that involve sex workers that are accurate, whether it's terminology from using different words that sex workers would actually use to describe their circumstances, to describe how much money they've made or to describe where they've worked. I think that those types of nuances are really important. And to me, when I think about sex work in film, it's really important to have somebody who has been a sex worker so that the accuracy of whatever you're creating actually relates to who is actually living that life.
0: Hmm. definitely I get really frustrated with uh writers I mean filmmakers too but specifically other writers because I started writing parenting and like sex ed all kinds of stuff anyway but I was in a group like interview on Twitter and someone said how do you feel about non-sex workers writing about sex workers and all the other writers were like oh yeah it's fine and I'm like wait none of you are sex workers though I'm telling you it's not because you get stuff wrong based on the fantasies or the projections or the other civilian media you've consumed and you're just regurgitating stereotypes, right? which isn't helpful. Right. I actually went off on a guy. I didn't go off, but uh, some very harsh criticism. I got a cold call DM from someone, a civilian man who was like, hey, please check out my book on Amazon. It's a book of poetry. And I'm not going to tell you the full title, but in the title, the word reluctant is in the title. (laughs) And I said, Did you did you write a book about sex workers as a civilian? And he says, As a poet. And I said (laughs) It's different. Yeah. I'm like, this would be like me writing a book about what it's like to be incarcerated when I've never been, or a non-parent talking about pregnancy, or Said a white person talking about what it's like to be a person of color like please don't do it
1: seriously so, no, thank you for no, your feedback yeah 100 percent. and I think it's so funny I'm not Neil deGrasse Tyson I'm not going to talk about the stars <laughs> and other scientific shit you know so because I'm not qualified to do so yeah. I just think it's so interesting that because sex work is stigmatized demonized and so extremely stereotyped that people are like well we can just make up anything about them because we all have a general understanding that they kind of suck and they'll do anything for money and therefore everything we say about them will somehow fall into place and make sense and Mm -hmm. it just yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) it blows my mind sometimes to be honest Mm
0: -hmm. so what comes to mind is that a lot of people get stuff wrong and that outsiders need to not be making material or if they are they need to heavily consult with us and pay us for our time
1: yes yes
0: all right. So listener question two. This one's gonna be more to me, but I'm curious to hear you reflect. Um, how do you stay confident? This person says, I've been in the industry for eight years and still struggle. So did you ever deal with feeling confident in the year that you were working?
1: Absolutely. I I I did a lot of bouncing back and forth from club to club because I was trying to find the club culture an environment that I felt worked best for me being a dark skinned black woman. Mm. And it definitely wasn't North Hollywood hated that. And I also went to Vegas and Vegas is a a completely different horse. You have to have, you know, game to be in Vegas. You got to have some real game. And Mm -hmm. for me, I don't really have like that mouthpiece where I'm so good at talking that somebody just wants to spend money on me because I'm a great conversationalist or I make them feel so enticed in ways I can, but ultimately that's just not my biggest strength. I was really great on stage, really great in a dance, but Mm. I dealt with a lot of racism in, Mm. especially in Vegas. You know, I've had guys say, you would be so much more attractive if you were lighter skinned. Oh my God. Or... Or I was giving a dance to this one white dude and he was like, wow, you're so beautiful. I wish you were lighter so I could see you better in this lighting. But you don't wish that the lighting was better so that you could see me better in the lighting. So I've definitely had a lot of rejection, especially from clubs. You know, a lot of clubs have a black cap where you go and they look at you and they're like, no, we have too many of exactly whatever this is, knowing that if I did want to start dancing again because I have braids, they're going to assume that I'm trying to make it a quote unquote urban club, therefore they want nothing to do with me. So clubs giving me the runaround, patrons saying things that to me were racist, were Mm -hmm. very difficult for me sometimes to maintain my confidence. And I only danced in Vegas for about a month. And that really beat the hell out of me more than any other time in my year as a dancer.
0: Mm, yeah, Vegas sounds really tough. Um, all of that racism sounds really tough.
1: I, I cried a lot, to be honest. I would just cry out the vibe. I'd cry out the emotions. Mm-hmm. And it, my boyfriend is actually white. So without telling him that I was having this racist experience dancing, I would tell him I had it somewhere else, right? So if I would go to Vegas to dance, I, my mom stays out there. Mm-hmm. So I would tell him go with my mom. I remember specifically In order to talk to him about the, oh, I wish I could see you better in this lighting, I said, I was at Starbucks. Starbucks has darkish lighting. Somebody told me I'd be prettier if I was lighter skinned. And he was like, You're beautiful, you know? And it's not because he's white that it made me feel good. It's because he's my boyfriend, but also just being able to talk to him without actually being able to talk to him and brushing it off and knowing I've been black all my life. That's not the craziest thing someone said to me uh, about being black. So. Kind of just talking myself down from a lot of the emotions that I was feeling and making sure that I'm doing things to pamper myself, keeping my nails done, keeping my hair done, and taking myself on dates and stuff like that.
0: Mm, good advice. Yeah. So I hear you saying you just processed a lot of emotion, basically, yeah. with what you found yourself doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big part of it for folks who are listening, whether or not you're a sex worker. But um, I, I cry all the time. I cry sometimes if it's a week, I might cry every day. And it's like either for how someone treated me or the state of the world. But I like to think that I'm processing the shit out rather than holding on to it. Um, and that's helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, to the question, they said they've been in the industry for eight years and still struggle. I mean, I also remind myself that it's work and it's hard. And if it was easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. So good on you for being able to make it work. I think. You know, be proud of yourself.
1: Yeah, and and I think also to, to that point and to yours as well is when you're a sex worker, whether that's a stripper, you know, dominatrix, what, full service, whatever it is, you're really seeing all of the raw sides of humanity, the rawest sides, especially of mm-hmm. men. And so I think that, when it comes to struggling and staying confident, you have to give yourself a lot of grace because the strip club environment is very unfiltered for a lot of, for a lot of men that come in there and Mm -hmm. you just have to try your best not to take it personally. For me, it was hard because it just reflected things I've heard my whole life. If somebody said something to me, I'd never heard it. I wouldn't care, but I do understand that it is It is what it is, and you have to realize that it's not really a reflection of you. It's more so these people coming in and projecting everything onto us because they don't treat us like people sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Somebody said something once, uh, another stripper. I, I got irritated with the way someone was behaving, and they're like, oh, it's a strip club. You expect people to treat us, like you have to just expect people to treat us bad. And I was like, I understand that people think that it's okay to treat us bad because they've been raised to devalue us their whole lives, but I don't have to accept it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and some people are teachable and I do hear from men and women, people who maybe it's when they're getting a dance, maybe it's an email where they're like, oh, I learned something. I didn't realize I had these biases or, you know, I try to act differently now. And so that is great because I think ultimately a lot of people don't want to do harm. We're just, again, we're regurgitating this shit and the ideas that we've seen replicated. And so that is why you and I do the work that we do, I think, to share other perspectives and humanize the industry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super important, humanizing everything going around sex work.
0: Mm -hmm. So listener question three, what's been your favorite parts of the work? You said money um, cascading. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> money cascading. That is, I dream about that feeling, <laughs> to be mm. honest. It's one of those unforgettable things that happens to you and you're like, I can't believe this is real. This is so cinematic and this is such mm-hmm. a dreamland. Look at me. I'm so beautiful. That three different mm-hmm. guys wanted to throw a bundle of money on me that I now get to scoop up and take home. It's, it's, that's a great feeling. I love that feeling. Mm-hmm. Also. um, I would honestly say that when I was a dancer, my some of my favorite interactions were with patrons and clients that I had who would come in regularly to see me. That was always nice, being and feeling, in a way, special to somebody mm-hmm. who comes in to the club as a form of escapism, perhaps, from their from their own life. I had this one... I had this one client and he just didn't have a good situation at home. He was like, my kids hate me. I try to do everything that I can. My wife hates me and coming here with you makes me feel like somebody cares about me. And it Mm -hmm. it keeps me off of the edge. I think that there's a healing aspect to sex work that people don't tend to recognize. And a lot of what I did when I was dancing was more sitting in the back in VIP doing therapy, you know? Mm was mm-hmm. connecting with somebody emotionally. Like I said before, I don't really have like game where I'm like, "Hey, I'm sexy sexy." Sometimes I could be that, but I feel like my vein was, "You want to talk?" <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I did really well from that. And mm-hmm. that that was one of my favorite parts of working was being a little therapist mm-hmm. sometimes.
0: Mhm. You know, we all need like humans need external validation. We we do it is very healthy and helpful for us to hear when we've done good when we've made somebody else feel good when we look nice like it's not good to rely on that but yeah we need that stuff um from our partners you know our parents our children even your pet showing interest in you is a type of external <laughs> yeah. validation right like, yeah that's
1: so somebody cute. Love loves me that. that. <laughs> that's so true <laughs> yeah
0: um And yeah, same, same. Definitely. I like feeling personally. I like feeling strong. I like if I am very gracefully executing, like lifting my entire body weight and I see people's mouths drop open and I'm like,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a good. one
0: That's a good one, too. I like hearing from people like you look so strong or you make me feel strong by watching you I'm like cool. I was a very unathletic dork my whole life until this. So cool. That's how I get validation. (laughs) That's Um, amazing. Right. Thank you. Um, So favorite parts of the work. And then, you know, money is nice. Money is helpful. We need money, uh, even if the club's taking half of it. (sighs) Uh, So, yeah, money. I appreciate being able to make money. I appreciate being able to support myself and my child in a way that I know other people can't. I'm grateful for that. That is a favorite part of the work for sure. Mm. Cause we're not doing it just for validation.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And I like that you brought up being able to support your lifestyle. And I think that goes back to one of my previous points is I didn't even think about that. Like, I'm just like, Oh yeah, the money falling down on me feels awesome and I get to take it home. But I didn't really even think about it from like a survival aspect and it's just kind of, to me goes back to the fact that I didn't have to do it for survival. Like, yeah, me being a therapist, that's a privilege. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. further recognizing my privilege that I have that I had in the club. I can go back there on, a, I mean, yeah, he's paying for it It's a VIP, but like I can go back there mm-hmm. and have a conversation and mm-hmm. and not be stressed out about how long this is taking me or going back out on the floor and talking to this guy for any longer because I'm not always in there like, okay, the money, the money, the money, the money. So I just thought Mm -hmm. I would recognize my privilege real quick.
0: I love that. Yeah, we like doing that on this show. (laughs)
1: Great. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay, so last question. Um, This is an interesting one. I've been hearing this for about 10 years, actually. Listener question four. Do you think technology is going to replace us? Strippers, in-person strippers. I hear from older gals that things were so different before the internet, and that worries me. I don't want to do internet work.
1: Mm, um, <sighs> I think that this is an interesting question when we relate it directly to stripping. I don't. I honestly don't know if I know if technology could ever replace an in-person. Connection. Do I think that technology could create barriers to make these in-person connections more difficult through possible shitty managerial processes? Yes, mm. but I, I, I don't, I don't know because I know a lot of dancers who make hella money because they're out promoting on Instagram, they're promoting on Twitter, they're selling out uh, sections and they're selling out bottles, and they have people coming to them every night because they're promoting themselves in that way. I think that. It can be a slippery slope. And I totally agree with not wanting to do internet work. You, do you think they're talking about OnlyFans?
0: Uh, they might be talking about or OnlyFans girlie? or webcam. Yeah. 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 Or even some people don't even want to be on Instagram or they can't at all, you know, because right. they're closeted.
1: Right. Absolutely. Uh, I think that. There will always be space for people who are not out about dancers to find some place to dance that works for them. I hope, again, managers, but there are clubs that facilitate privacy as best as they can. I've worked at Mm -hmm. one or two of them, Mm -hmm. Um, but I totally also understand not wanting to do internet work. I didn't, I did internet work for like a minute. (laughs) I signed up Mm -hmm. for OnlyFans and I never did it because I didn't like the idea of my image being there forever. Mm -hmm. that's why Mm -hmm. i like the in-person stuff and i could only ever do in-person stuff um stripping because once i'm gone i'm gone all that's Mm -hmm. left is my memory and my essence you know i'm not Mm -hmm. there
0: so Mm -hmm. when i started in 2009 i remember the other girls were like this is the worst it's ever been um and like honestly i feel like it becomes more challenging every year Mm -hmm. because consider like before the internet, if you wanted to see boobs or talk to a pretty lady, you had to leave your house. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And now there's, there's more options for people to sit at home or look on their phone, you know, laptop, which again, isn't necessarily bad because that's different working options for different people who don't want to leave their house to work either. I agree with you that internet stuff, I don't think will ever replace the in-person sensations of like, the scent, you know, or the feeling of their hair, you know, our hair like on you or holding hands or a back rub or, you know, my weight on your lap. Mm. Definitely. Okay. So let's take another quick break. Everybody go to Instagram. If you haven't already look up at Asia Corinne and at Pleaser series on Instagram. Hey, do you want to open your relationship? Whether you're totally ready or 100% terrified, I've got something for you. Best-selling author, New York Times, and NPR contributor, Dr. Jolie Hamilton, is the expert who helps people open their relationships up without burning things down. Now you can leverage her five pillars of open relationships to open yours the smart way. Dr. Jolie shares the five pillars during her upcoming online salon. Grab your spot at openeasier.com. It's free when you register now at OpenEasier.com. Welcome back to They Talk Sex podcast. You can find TheyTalkSex.com, episodes there, also some recommended products and affiliates. There are discounts on many of these. These are products that I know and like and trust. Either they're ethically made or they're just really incredibly effective for self-care. And then if you use any of the discount codes, I do often get a percentage. So if you don't want me to earn any passive income, just don't use the discounts for me or use them from someone else. But this is my ethical uh, responsibility to inform you all. Otherwise, we are talking sex work in film. This is the sex work in film episode, and our guest Asia Corin. So, what policies, practices, law, or people either put you in danger or directly hurt you or threatened your life and safety as someone uh, as a stripper?
1: So being that I have like, currently retired from dancing, There's not something I feel like is putting me in danger, but for the women that I work with and those that I interview, there are an insane amount of policies and practices. And I I guess I'll start with the practices. I always like to think about managerial first, right? So everything that goes on in a strip club, if it's a toxic environment, whatever club you're working at, it's top down. So if the manager is facilitating, calling the girls out of their name, hiring security who are going to put the women in danger, treating the women like they're not worth anything, extorting them for sexual favors, all of these things are top down. And I think that that's a managerial practice that definitely affects a lot of women in sex work. And Mm -hmm. I know that when I was a dancer... I worked with this girl. I can't remember her name. I think it was something like Raya. And she was giving a lap dance in the VIP room and she wasn't out. And one of our managers tried to blackmail her for a sexual favor. He was like, if you don't do this on the on the security camera, he was recording her giving a dance in the VIP. And he said, if you don't do X, Y, Z sexual favors, I'm going to put this on Snapchat and it's going to go out to the world, you know? And so certain things like that, situations like that. So if the managers don't care about the girls, that literally trickles down to everything else. The managers don't care that could affect how the DJs play play on your set, if they're cutting your set short, if they're making you stay on stage for too long and now it's awkward. The security, mm-hmm. what are they enforcing? What are they allowing patrons to do? What are they allowing patrons to get away with? And are they creating a safe environment for the club? I think that that is a practice that definitely hurts dancers. Also house fees, obviously, fuck those, that's insane. Um, mm-hmm. These house mm-hmm. fees are out of control and I've heard that they've only gotten worse since the pandemic. And I've actually seen that because I had interest in going back to the club and I was like calling around and seeing what the requirements were. I never went back, but Mm -hmm. I had gone someplace Mm -hmm. and I was like, what do you guys' house fees? They said like $150 and then after (gasps) six, it's like 200 bucks. Why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. They are out of control. House fees are out of control. Um, There just needs to be ethical regulation within strip clubs. And I think that managers should also be more ethical people. Um, Mm -hmm. Laws. I know AB five is a huge issue and Mm. SESTA FOSTA. Of course Mm -hmm. uh, you would know this. I think I just did recently Mm -hmm. an episode on censorship and I interviewed a lot of people, three different women from three different industries because it shows you kind of the broad impact that censorship has on sex workers and They were talking about how much more dangerous it is for them, how much more dangerous it is for their friends, and how it forces sex workers back possibly into the streets or to resort to not safe forms of finding clients, going to the streets, finding clients, Mm -hmm. maybe hear a recommendation from somebody and not being able to vet who they've recommended you to. Mm -hmm. I think that all of these different laws, practices, and things like that put sex workers in danger continuously. Mm. And the worst part about it is sex workers are in the room when these things are happening, when these laws are being drafted, when they're being passed. Nobody's asking sex workers because they think that we need saving so bad that there's like a stock. I think there's some sort of political assumption that sex workers have Stockholm syndrome of sorts, like They're terrified. Mm -hmm. They hate being in the club. They hate being full service. They hate being dominatrixes, whatever. And they do this because they're relegated to the work because they have no other options in life. So they don't look at the Mm -hmm. aspect that a lot of people choose to do this type of work. And even people who, you know, don't want to do the work, but are choosing to do the work, there's not space for them to speak. And so it's very Mm -hmm. dangerous when people with power are making laws that don't reflect how they live. And it goes back to what you and I were saying earlier. How can you write about a sex worker? You don't know any sex workers. You've never been a sex worker. What are you talking Mm -hmm. about? So how can you Mm -hmm. write a law that's going to affect these women or these people? Mm
0: -hmm. Right. And being a client does not count as knowing sex workers. Right. Because... When you are paying someone to interact with you, they are more likely to tell you what you want to hear to keep it safer for them or to keep the interaction going. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely agree and understand everything you said. AB5 in California has been a nightmare for so many strippers who, you know, the, the argument I heard was that, well, we'll just make you employees and then you'll have more rights and regulation. But clubs that have never had to pay a wage to strippers are never going to be able to pay us as much as we might be able to just earn in tips. Or what I heard happened quite a bit was clubs would fire like a big or terminate, stop booking a big chunk of dancers so that they had less of them on the payroll. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of people out of work. Or if we're talking about qualifying for benefits, you know, how many hours would I have to work as a stripper in order to qualify for benefits? it might be way more hours than I'm even able to work, or the clubs would be cutting people after like five hours of their shift so that they could get out of doing that.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. And it's just, it's crazy because it doesn't stop everything else that's already been happening in the club. You're gonna make me an employee, now I'm losing even more money because taxes and whatever the hell else. And I still have to pay a house fee. How does that make sense? Doesn't it, it just doesn't work right. as a system? And it further allows managers to extend their power and creates a wider power dynamic, I think, between the mm-hmm. dancers and the managers and the owners, because at that at that point you're you're locked in. Mm-hmm. You're locked into something that you can't do anything about.
0: Mm -hmm. i've talked to a lot of venue owners in oregon that say they don't want employee status either because it will make it harder for them to be a successful business as well um which is nice to hear um on the other side of that though i i think personally and tell me what you think if we want to give the strippers more rights and less opportunity for being extorted we need to do away with stage fees which is what you you said earlier like There is no reason I, as an independent contractor, should be paying waged employees or a venue a percentage to be there um, because this venue would not exist if we weren't there in the first place. So figure out how to make your money off of liquor or food or door fees. But you shouldn't be taking half of the money I did in dances or trying to count the tips I did on stage. Yuck.
1: Yeah, I I agree 100% with that. And there's some clubs who have extremely cheap entry fees. but. Mm-hmm. S- dancers are paying $125 to work, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that if you need to take money from something, you should inflate the cost on the customers. They're going to pay it. They're coming here. Mm-hmm.
0: Totally. Yeah. So what are some resources or other people that have been helpful for you for surviving or thriving or just learning?
1: When I was a sex worker, the women that I worked with were extremely important to me. I, I'm not friends with any of them now because, like I said, I was living a double life. So I, none of them had my number. They didn't, they had my like trap mm. number. They had my Instagram and <laughs> things like that. But knowing that I could go into the dressing room and just decompress, or a girl's gonna check to see if I'm all good, or tie my top for me and tell me I killed it on stage. I think that level of camaraderie and sisterhood that I didn't initially expect to at all be present or exist in the strip club environment was very integral to how I thrived in that scenario, in that arena. Mm -hmm. And it really endeared me to sex workers in general. And Mm -hmm. I have always been the type of person, like growing up, I was always a loner type shit. You know, I had friends, Mm -hmm. you know, most of my friends were guys because I had a lot of trauma, from family members that I didn't know how to interact with women. So I just thought mm-hmm. that when I went to the club, this would be just a reflection, a reflection of some of the abuse I felt like I endured from women in my family that I felt like were supposed to love me, you know? And mm. when I met women in the club and the sex workers I even meet now, I, it's the most accepting, understanding, kind-hearted, soft <laughs> community I've ever been involved with. And a lot of the people that I meet are extremely vulnerable, and I think that that's very important to helping me thrive in my life, Um, Mm -hmm. in my own identity, in my everyday, and especially with pleasers. So I, I try to give back to them and the community that I have so much respect for, that taught me a lot about how I see myself, by providing a platform that is unbiased in, I mean, maybe I'm a little biased in my approach. Yeah, I got to be real, but like, <laughs> um, but I try to provide a platform so that people who don't get to talk for about themselves finally get to talk for themselves. And mm, that's, I love that. That's a lot of the work that I do, and that's how I feel like I try to give back to that community.
0: That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, especially what I'm hearing, uh, I'm thinking and reflecting is when the management or the staff is less supported, I think it can really, I think lead some of the workers to being more likely to like share food or look out for each other with the creepy, you know, manager or, you know, heads up on this or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, real quick, I want to mention a film that I saw last year. So it's whoresonfilm.com. Um, the film itself is called The Celluloid Bordello. It's by Juliana Piccolo. She's an older uh, white woman sex worker. Uh, she I saw this screening in a theater in uh, Eugene, Oregon. She's screening it around the country, and someone asked her if she still does sex work and she said she keeps trying to retire, but men keep wanting to hire her to fuck them. So in the ass, so she does a lot of pegging, I think still, <laughs> but her film is a lot about how sex workers are portrayed on media over the last century. And it just really struck me. So listeners check it out. Um, Asia, maybe you'll feel interested to check it out. Uh, because when I found out about your film, that was the only thing I could really even try to compare it to, because most of the media was made by outsiders. Mm-hmm. So I just thought or men that was notable, or yeah, men absolutely. <laughs> so do you have any any wrecks of your own? Um, any other media people should check out, and it's okay if not.
1: Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I don't. <laughs> I'm not gonna. That's lie. why you made your own. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> shout out to shout out to them though. What was their name? Yeah, yeah. Juliana Piccolo. Shout out to Juliana. Yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely check something. it out. I'll definitely check it out. It's a good one.
0: Um, Trigger warning. There are a bunch of scenes from Hollywood and mainstream films um, about 10 minutes in where violence is being done to sex workers. And she's making the point that it's really, really common to see this portrayed or like sexualized or glorified. But I had to cover my ears and my eyes because mm. some of it's pretty harsh. But it's from films, you know, like if anybody saw Monster in 2004-ish about Eileen Wernos, America's first female serial killer, she was a sex worker who started killing the clients that were abusing her. But there's a pretty brutal um, sexual assault scene and, and others, so that's my only aside I will give about the film. Heads up on that. Okay. Yeah. Um. Last question to you, Asia. I ask every guest this. Do you have any sex tips for our audience?
1: Uh, my sex tips would be, I think, I I, I guess my, my biggest sex tip would be communication. I think mm. that that is... The most important part personally for me and how I engage mm-hmm. with my partner, it's definitely more communication based and being upfront about what you require, what your needs are, especially be upfront when your needs aren't being met, that's super important. I think especially for women, we tend to just say, this is fine. you know this is at least <sighs> I'm getting something. I would say don't settle and make sure to communicate your needs.
0: Mm-hmm. and you're a great communicator and thank you so much for being here everybody uh this was the sex work in film episode this was our guest asia corinne look her up online at asia corinne at pleasers series on instagram you can find the film pleasers on youtube you said if you look up stripper stripper movie stripper film Stri- up. it might work out for stripper film but stripper documentary it pops right up uh-huh. awesome okay good beautiful yeah folks go watch that let me know what you think write to they talk sex at protonmail.com please don't blow up my dms online uh it's not safe on there they have bots and crawlers that look for keywords and i'm not trying to get more shadow banned. (laughs) that's a good call right all right okay everybody until next time thank you